Let's start, though, with that question of uh, definition. Um, I'll tell you what I'm thinking, uh, what, what's framing it for me, which isn't necessarily what I was asked to do, but I'm English, you're Australian. Uh, but when I uh, hear this, uh, I'm thinking people for whom um, career um, and, as it were, climbing up whatever social uh, economic ladder uh, isn't a part of their culture, isn't part of their framework, isn't part of their worldview. Uh, acquisition is, but acquisition is different than aspiration. Um, and so it's, it's it, generally speaking, in my context, it would be people uh, that would generally be called within the benefit class. Um, so uh, people who who uh, not necessarily live, it doesn't mean they don't have jobs, but they have this instinct, they have this tradition, this culture, whereas uh, recourse to the state to uh, fund them, be that in terms of the children that they have, the context, a, a, a dependent uh, context. Um, so those are the things. We call them uh, you know, inner city housing projects, uh, council estates, um, um, schemes, various terms, but that's largely what I, I'm thinking of. Now let me tell you a bit about my story. Um, and what um, we're seeking to do. I live in the city of Sheffield, uh, which is um, a city in the north of England uh, of about 550,000 people. Uh, and I'm a, 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 an elder in a church there called the Crowded House. Um, in Sheffield, and this is the case in many cities in England, uh, there's an east-west divide, and it's largely to do with the prevailing wind. Because most of the winds in, and I know that sounds silly, but it really is the case, because most of the wind comes from the west, um, during the Industrial Revolution, when uh, factories were built, um, because uh, they create a lot of uh, pollution, smoke, etc., um, the people who built them, that is the wealthy, would always um, make sure that they built um, so that they weren't downwind of the pollution. So the wealthy areas are generally, or often on the west of a city, the poorer areas are on the east of a city. Um, and the type of housing we have is very close, terraced housing, you know, where houses are, are just built together in a long line, back to back, so no garden, just small yards, uh, alleys, uh, alleyways between them, and, and so on. We call them genels, uh, where I come from. Um, now, the west part of the city uh, is, in, in my city, is, is really quite prosperous. Uh, overall, it's a prosperous city. Um, and uh, the life expectancy of somebody living in uh, an area called Hallam on the west of the city uh, is around about 15 years of, a, of an average male, 15 years longer than somebody living in the, uh, the, the, the worst part of the city in terms of all the social indices. So it's very significant, and only three miles separates those two points. But uh, the life expectancy is uh, about 15 years less. Um, you, you know why as soon as you, um, as soon as you spend time in that area, that uh, a council estate or whatever term you use, um, when you see them feeding um, six-week-old uh, six babies with a bottle with uh, Mars bars that have been melted down, um, you just know that right from the start there's, that there's going to be very practical issues. Um, we, uh, my, my son and his daughter live on this estate. We have a, a young grandson. They went round to their neighbours uh, and uh, the, he's, only, um, 
He's only like uh, nine months old. And uh, they were feeding him um, all sorts of uh, things that um, his parents would rather that he wasn't being fed. But this was the first time in their home. uh, And uh, they're living there for the sake of the gospel. So um, they're just working out how to navigate this. Um, Some time ago as a church, we took the decision that we wanted to look east. So we're uh, on, on the south part of the city. Um, it's very much a kind of a student, prosperous, very aspirational area. Um, and uh, that's where we replanted a church. So we have a building there. We have a house there, uh, a manse, a vicarage, uh, whatever term you use. Um, but we, because um, there are a number of other evangelical churches within very close proximity, we would never have planted there. It was merely an opportunistic uh, reaction or opportunity, sorry, just to um, replant a church that brought with it a number of benefits. Um, but what we try to do is say, okay, let's target the east of the city and let's plant there. Um, and so that's what we've been trying to do. And we've been trying to do it for some time. We've never fully gone for a plant, a formal full-on plant as it were. We've uh, set up li- uh, life groups there, a couple of them. We've encouraged people to move there. We now have about 25 people living on in the east of the city on this uh, estate. We have other works in the east of the city, uh, largely among immigrant populations, um, such as uh, Mirpuri uh, from Pakistan, Kashmir, uh, and also uh, from northern Iraq, uh, largely uh, refugees and so on. Uh, so we have other works on the east of the city, but this is a particular area of the, uh, as it called, the, the, the non-aspirational. We have about 25 people living there, as I say, and uh, we're taking the plunge this year, September, uh, and I'm leading a church plant uh, on this uh, housing estate. Um, and we've had people living there for, for 10 years. Uh, so the first house that we had, we had two girls and one uh, bloke move up there. In fact, the girl, one of the girls is my assistant. She's been my assistant since she graduated from university. She's a daughter of a doctor and a social worker. Uh, so very middle class background, went to university, got a good degree, uh, but has a heart for reaching people um, uh, who are currently outside of the normal reach of, uh, of, of the gospel because of the way that evangelicalism is largely a middle class phenomenon uh, within the UK. And uh, I, I suspect it may be the case here as well. The irony of that is the fact that um, historically that has not been the case uh, in the UK. Historically, if you look back to the, the times of Wesley Whitfield, if you look back to what happened in Wales under Hal Harris and so on in the 19th century, uh, and even in the early part of the 20th century, uh, that they were to a very large degree working class. The whole of the uh, the, the Methodist revival under Wesley, where 30% of the population of England uh, would have uh, called themselves Methodists at one point. That was a largely working class movement. Um, and, and not just working class, an underclass movement as well, where it began in Bristol, uh, where Whitfield was ministering and he was going to go to the Americas. He asked Wesley to come and fill in for him. When he went, Wesley was very reluctant, um, but he was, uh, he was willing to come and see. He saw 
Whitfield preach to miners in an area of Bristol, and not only miners, but also prostitutes and smugglers from, from that area. Uh, it, was a, it was a time of, of great violence. Fights were breaking out all the time, and, and squalor and depravity, and that's commented upon politically as well as uh, in, in Whitfield's journal. But he would preach in the open air, miners would come, and Wesley remarked how he would see tears uh, for, for causing kind of rivulets to, to form in the coal dust on their faces as they were responding to the gospel. And uh, Wesley, who was opposed to church planting, uh, opposed to open-air preaching, uh, knew then he had no option but to continue the work that Whitfield had begun. But one of the things that Wesley did was he had a, a pressing question. How am I going to stop these people from this background, as I say, smugglers, uh, prostitutes, coal miners? How am I going to stop them going back into their old lifestyle uh, after their profession of faith. And so he created the class system uh, and the revival that happened in England that to such effect in the 18th century was not just spread by Whitfield's, uh, Wesley's preaching uh, uh, as, um, as phenomenal as that was or, or as extensive as that was, but through these class systems where people formed communities, where they were accountable to one another, that they were a major means of other people being converted from the same social strata. And Wesley and Whitfield, were neither of them were from that as well, but they effectively reached them. Now, that's our heritage. But despite that, we are a largely middle-class phenomenon. So works in estates like the one that I'm talking about are relatively rare. They are happening. There's an awareness that they need to happen, a growing awareness, but they are relatively rare. Uh, so we've been trying to uh, work there and uh, reach people there. And we've had people, as I say, over the last 10 years moving there so that we have now 25 and we're going to go with a full-on plant. Now let me just identify very quickly some uh, key issues uh, that I think are very important that I think begin to answer uh, these questions that you've raised. Um, not, not necessarily directly, but certainly uh, the, the, the general pr- uh, within the general field, and hopefully we'll tease out. Here's the first principle. For the gospel to be heard among the non-aspirational, you need to live among the non-aspirational. For the gospel to be heard among them, you need to live among them. You see, the majority of people in these contexts, and, and part of the problem I have in terms of I don't know um, what, what, how, how, it's kind of, how it's structured here in your society. Um, so I can only tell you how it is in mine, and then you can make the necessary adjustments and, and application. Ours is that they t- it tends to be geographically defined, almost exclusively. Um, and people who live on council estates... Uh, that are troubled council estates. And the one that we're talking about in Sheffield uh, was once regarded as being the most violent estate in the whole of the country, so so that taxi drivers wouldn't go there. Um, I used to uh, teach people to ride motorbikes uh, as a way of funding church planting. I did that partly to uh, connect with people that I wouldn't normally connect with. Um, Because, see, I'm one of these strange phenomena that I'm from this kind of environment. Um, a lot of my family um, live on estates like this, and uh, a lot of my family uh, have been in prison, my brothers, etc., for various crimes and, uh, and, and the, the whole gamut. So I'm very familiar with it, but I've been uh, through various, I, I've, been, I've become middle class. 
but I wanted to meet uh, people for the sake of the gospel. So uh, I've always ridden a motorbike, so I, I just got qualified to train, uh, and I did that. Now, when I was doing this, the irony was we weren't allowed to take people through these estates. Because you had fluorescent green jackets which made you a great target for rocks and bricks and things like that. Um, and so I thought on one occasion, well, hey, let's, what the heck, let's give it a go. Um, it was the last time that I took our learners through that estate. Um, there were no fatalities, but it was a bit messy. Um, so these people have no, these contacts... People largely have no access to the gospel or to God's people. They just don't because Christians generally aren't there. And if anybody does get converted, and it's incredible how Pentecostal churches have historically been the primary over recent year, recent decades, been the means of, of reaching people from these backgrounds, um, but, and, but not necessarily on the estates themselves. But um, they, it's been a case that the people will then move out of the estates. So there's this kind of upward pull. Uh, so you get saved, you get a job, you get some income, you get aspirational, you move out to a better area. Uh, no, we've got to have people living there. And initially that means taking middle class people and moving them into the estate with a specific and express intention of sharing the gospel. Nothing beats, quite simply, nothing beats uh, standing in the queue at a local shop or catching the same bus day after day to get a feel for an area, to connect with people, to the way that you hear people speak of their hopes and, and, and their struggles and what they're passionate about, what they're frustrated by. And you'll be there when a neighbor needs driving to hospital or somebody needs milk early in the morning. You'll be there and you'll, they'll get to know that you're the person that they can go to. It's vital that you're there. You'll be working in your garden, uh, your backyard with a couple of others from church at the weekend and a neighbor will often offer to help you. You'll be in your front yard and people will be out, out, outside because during the, the, the summer months, People spend a lot of time on the doorstep and on the street. And these simple activities go a long way to building relationships, to breaking down prejudices, uh, and to having opportunity to speak about Jesus. And they're often ordinary, they're often very unspectacular, but they shouldn't be underestimated. Now we're going to plant, as I say, in September... But it's basically been 10 years of getting a core team together and 10 years of getting us to a point where I think we can with credibility plan. Now, I'm not saying it has to take that time, but in our case, it has taken that time. And in terms of people becoming Christian, it's been very slow. It really has. And, and we think that this next step is going to be a helpful way of getting people uh, under the sound of the gospel more. Not that people aren't finding opportunity. They are. We've been doing a, a three for three prayer. That is three people praying for three people for three months, three times a week uh, for three minutes each. No, we didn't do the three minutes each. You're allowed to pray for as long as you wanted. But that you get the idea. It was just saying, okay, uh, let's, let's make this a really focused time. And this, this life group uh, of 10 people were praying for 50 people between them, all of whom they are in regular contact and having regular gospel conversations with or regularly reading the Bible with. 
So there's a lot of gospel ministry going on, and we think this is a necessary first step, but it's vital that people live there. Secondly, for the gospel to be heard among the non-aspirational, you need to live there in a way that exposes people to the message of the cross. So you need to live in a way that makes it very clear that it's Jesus who you live for, that it's Jesus who you're passionate about. If church is God's primary mission strategy in the world, um, and that is what I, I, that's my conviction, then we need to be a, concentrate on being a group of people, a group of Christ followers, and to do that seriously. Um, and if we live like that, people will take notice. It's been fascinating in the, in, in the local pub to hear people identify this random selection of people as were as the Christians. And when they get talking to you, they say, oh, you're one of the Christians, are you? And there's this housing estate of about 15,000 people. um, And they know there's a group of people whom they designate as the Christians. Um, And it's not that, that there's never been any threat. There's never been any antagonism. There's certainly been a lot of indifference. But there's never been any of those things. And yet there is, uh, among many, many people, a real sense of respect and regard and and knowledge. They've, They've built credibility. They've been seen by the quality of their lives, the durability of their service, and the humility of their confession. That the, the expectation, you move on to the estate, first of all, why are you here? Nobody moves on to this estate until you won't be here long. So you move in, you stay around. And that is a compelling message. And it takes you a long time to gain the credibility so that people will engage seriously with the gospel. Uh, thirdly, for the gospel to be heard among the non-aspirational, you need to know the gospel. Um, the gospel is not good advice. And you find lots of opportunities among this people group, let's call them that for the sake of it, who you will want to give good advice to. So you let your children stay up till 11.30 or they fall asleep on the floor. That's not a good idea. Well, no, it isn't. But that's not what's keeping them out of hell, is it? No, you, 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 you don't want to get... You don't want to get picked up by the, by, by the police? Well, stop walking around with a, a, a spliff in your, in your hand and, and, and selling it on the street. Just stop doing it. You, that's good advice, but it's not what the issue is. So don't be somebody who's known as somebody who can give good advice, who can dispense that kind of wisdom to people. You do that in the context of relationships, But you've got to know that it's a gospel that you're offering them. And don't offer them cheap grace. People don't need patronizing. As though their life is too hard for holiness. Or their their circumstances are too complex for discipleship. Or that they're too thick to understand. Just because somebody doesn't have aspirations. Or just because somebody hasn't had formal uh, education. Does not mean that they're unintelligent. Just because they don't have an extensive vocabulary doesn't mean to say they're stupid. There's lots of people who have a very wide vocabulary I know who are stupid. So vocabulary has got nothing to do with intelligence quota. So don't patronize people by thinking that they can't cope with the demands of the gospel. Um, And don't use emotive twaddle. Jesus loves you is not an adequate summary of the gospel. Uh, It always comes with a call to repentance and faith. So call people to repentance and faith. Uh, Fourthly, for the gospel to be heard among the non-aspiration, you need to know how to apply it to people's lives. 
You'll know the, the, the whole issue about idols in people's lives and the sin beneath the sin. You'll have plenty of opportunity to see sin. You'll be confronted with sin up close and personal. Certainly that's been our experience. It's been stark. It's been brutal. It's been disturbing. But don't get distracted by the sin. Don't get to the point where you, as it were, want to wrap your robe of righteousness around you to protect you from contamination. No, know that there is sin, but know that that is an expression of a far deeper sin and work out how to apply the gospel there. And how do you work that out? Well, you know the gospel, but you also, you also listen to people. Listen far more than you speak. James says that. That's why God has given us two ears and only one tongue. So listen twice as much as you, you speak. Have people sit around your kitchen table with a cup of tea or with a bottle of whiskey that they brought in or whatever it is and get them to talk and find out what the sin beneath the sin is and apply the gospel there into their madness and their idolatry. And one of the things that we find, and maybe it's because we're in in the north of England where we call a spade a spade, but people appreciate straight talkers. There was this one, one woman, and I wish I could say it was a happy ending, but it, it wasn't at all. But it was a long period of time uh, of drug abuse, of child abuse, of, of, of all sorts of things. Uh, but the, one of the great things is we could just tell her it as it was. And she would listen. And, and, and she, she, we could engage with her. Um, and there are many stories about that. You see, contextualization, as I said earlier, isn't about making the gospel relevant. It is showing how the gospel is pertinent to the people that you're with. But contextualization always involves adaptation and it always involves confrontation. It always involves both, adaptation and confrontation. You can't go and live among the non-aspirational on these housing estates or whatever terms you use. You can't do it and uh, think that you can carry on being the kind of person that you were. You do need to live there. I think that is a non-negotiable. You do need to live there. But make sure that you know where your identity is found. And it's not found in your university education. It's not found in your vocabulary. It's not found in your books. So, for example, you might love the fact of good Christian books and your Christian library, but make sure, please make sure that your downstairs isn't littered with these books, that your walls aren't lined with books. Because a lot of people among non-aspirational have no desire to read. Uh, They've not been equipped to read. uh, And so they don't want to walk into a house and be confronted by books, some of whom title they can't even begin to understand. So put your library elsewhere. Put it upstairs. Have the telly on when they come around. Because very often more conversations go on as you're sitting there in the room and the telly is pray, playing these ridiculous daytime TV shows um, you know, where they all dish the dirt and, and all of that. Well, have that on. And watch them together. Just sit there drinking your cup of tea, chatting. Because out of that, there will come conversations. You may not like it. Buy newspapers that you wouldn't normally buy. So that you know what kind of newspapers they're reading. Just engage with them as people. Take them seriously as people. Love them as people. And reach them for the gospel for Christ. Now, one of the issues that, 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 that is uh, problematic 
very often in these kind of uh, projects that is uh, reaching them and planting among them is the fact there are not many resources. And, and I wish we could say, let's go in, let's preach the gospel, let's see, see people saved and let's build an indigenous church. Um, that might happen. In some places, that may have happened in some, but in my experience, it's not likely to. In my experience, it's likely to be that you get a reasonable-sized church who takes the gospel seriously in their city, uh, in their area, and then deliberately plants. And it could take a long time. Don't, Don't impose upon your strategy stuff that has worked in other social contexts because it isn't necessarily going to work. Don't apply the same criteria for success that you do here. The fact is, you will see people walking with Jesus and then suddenly they will fall. And if you see somebody who, um, who, who takes heroin, one for Jesus, well, shooting up twice a day is better than shooting up five times a day. And they can still be a follower of Jesus who shoots up twice a day because next week, next month, maybe it's going to be once a day. And that's progress. That's sanctification. It's as they're understanding the gospel, as they're working it out. But you've got to be there with them. You've got to be prepared to take the knocks and to get covered in the excretia so that you might win the for, for Christ. Now, I don't want to big it up and make it as though it's kind of cutting edge, core, radical ministry. If you talk to the people that, we, that, that live on the estate, um, you know, that, well, I'll tell you that, that Jen, my assistant, was talking with somebody who was thinking of joining them. And she was slightly afraid of it. And Jen said, uh, I don't know what to say because actually we love living there. It's not a hardship for us. In fact, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in Sheffield other than here. And this is a single girl who walks around the estate, who's never been accosted, is respected and honored and loved and sought after. So please don't think of it as it's always going to be this hardcore, cutting-edge, train-spotting kind of train wreck. It isn't. Um, But it is going to take um, creativity, adaptability, sacrifice, and passion to win people for Jesus. Okay, that's all I've got to say. That gives us 25 minutes. Uh, I hope that was helpful. Uh, at least framing some things. Let me just go through some of these as reasonably quickly and then give you time to either come back or ask new questions or make new points. As I said, please, I'm, I'm, I'm not the expert who has all the answers a, at all. Um, I've just got some experience and I've reflected upon this uh, for some time. Um, one of the things was how do you raise up non-leaders as leaders? Um, and I think that a critical piece is that we've got to, we've got to have a new definition of leaders. I was uh, a good friend of mine, uh, a guy called Doug Logan, is uh, preaching in, uh, is planting in a particular part of, uh, of the, the east of the United States. Um, he's an African American, uh, and uh, he's planting in a very difficult area. In fact, the, the crime capital of the United States, the murder capital of the United States, it really does seem it's a, it's a brutal area. Uh, and he was talking about what he was doing the other day, and, and he said this, uh, and I was very struck by this. He, says, he said, I don't want your seminary graduates. I don't want your middle-class kids. He says, give me drug dealers. You give me drug dealers and I'll give you church planters. 
You give me drug dealers and I'll give you people who know how to survive. I'll give you people who know how to make money. I'll give you people who know how the, where a good opportunity is. I'll give you people in a very competitive market uh, can, can carve out something very distinct. I'll, I'll give you people who are creative, who are brave. I'll give you people who can make a difference. So we have to change our definition of what a leader is. Uh, our understanding of a leader. We need to recognize leaders uh, in areas that we wouldn't necessarily, rec- necessarily recognize leaders. And we have, to, we have to lower the bar in terms of what we expect from leaders, at least initially, because we've got to disciple them. You know, very often one of our problems of church planters when we gather a core team is that we want the best and the brightest because we want it landing on our plate. We just don't want to work hard at doing it. May God give us uh, just the privilege of seeing men and women just who are willing to get in, invest, work hard to raise up. That they're not wanting it all handed to them on a plate, but they're willing to do the blood, sweat and tears that Paul seems to talk about. So yes, you can raise up non-leaders as leaders. Just make sure that you don't have this middle class professional definition or understanding of leadership. And for those of you who are middle class or professional or from that kind of background, you will find that very difficult, I promise you. My brother um, is is, uh, nearly 60. Uh, He's a drug addict, uh, been in prison, broken life, probably isn't going to live for long. But in his heyday, um, he was a very impressive leader. He was a leader of men. He, he achieved a great deal in his environment, but you'd never have recognized it if you listened to TED Talks about leadership. It's just a very different model. It's sad to see him so broken now and so hardened to the gospel, but uh, it is what it is. So you can raise up non-leaders as leaders, but you've got to invest. You've got to change your definition. Um, Reading. So, yes, it's not a reading culture. Um, But let's remember that the Bible was not readily available in this form until a long time after Jesus had died and was risen and ascended. A long time after. And the church grew in those 1,400 years. In those 1500 years, it really did. Now, it's not a bad thing to have the Bible in people's hands and for them to be encouraged to read it daily, but it isn't essential. Paul would write a letter, send it, and it would get read. He didn't photocopy it so everybody could get one and take it home and then do their daily devotionals on it. So it's not an essential part of how we do things. So just because people read doesn't mean that they, that they uh, again, are ignorant. I know someone um, on a state who's a very bright man, and I have lots of conversations with him about the Dead Sea Scrolls, etc. And how does he know about them? Because he, he, he watches television, a lot of television. Like anything up to 12 hours a day, he will watch television. But he'll watch the history program. He'll watch the Discovery Channel. He'll tell me about what's happening in islands in the Pacific and and global warming. He'll talk to me, as I say, about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, he's never read a book in his life. He doesn't even like reading a paper. But he drinks this up. So let's find ways of doing it. Let's find ways of getting the gospel across. Let's find ways of discipling people that doesn't require them to have got a senior school certificate. 
Um, let's, um, so uh, middle class, uh, to, to reach them, yes. But for reasons that I've said, you've got to be adaptable. All the people that we have on there now, with the exception of one family are, that have moved up, are middle class. But they're living in that kind of housing. They're visiting those shops. They're using those pubs. They're, they're getting involved in their, their, their football clubs and their boxing and whatever. They're just getting involved. They're leaving their middle classness behind, as it were. Being middle class doesn't define us, does it? Well, it does, sadly, but it shouldn't. Being in Christ does, which means that uh, that gives us a great flexibility. And that was a point that I didn't get round to in my talk this, this morning. To the Jew I became a Jew, said Paul the Jew. Have you ever noticed that? He's a Benjamite, a Pharisee. He, he lists his credentials in Philippians 3, doesn't he? But he says, to the Jew I became a Jew. Why? Because that wasn't his identity anymore. He, being in Christ was his identity. As a citizen of the kingdom of God, that was his identity, which meant that he had this glorious flexibility. Um, and what structures are appropriate? Well, find out. Just build. You don't have to put on a show. You don't have to be polished. You don't have to be slick. You really don't. You just need to find out what is appropriate. So build those structures that are appropriate. Because that's the thing about any structure in any context. It is only worth it if it is appropriate to the context you're in. If it actually produces what you want it to produce. So be clear about your outcome. Do you want people to come in and sit quietly and, uh, and, and, and listen to a 40-minute talk? Well, if you do, it probably isn't going to happen. People are going to go in and out. People are going to go out because they're doing you the courtesy of not lighting up the cigarette or, or, or the joint whilst you're there. They're just going to go outside to do it. They're going to go outside because they're fed up after three minutes, five minutes. They don't want to listen to you anymore. And they'll tell you. They'll come back in and say, Oh, oh you didn't mind, Steve, but I was, you couldn't follow you, mate. Didn't understand a word you were saying. So I thought I'd go out till you'd finished. It doesn't mean he hates you. It, it doesn't mean to say that he doesn't want to listen to you. It doesn't mean to say that he's not going to be reached with the gospel. It's just that you're boring him. And they don't mind telling you that. Um, preaching. Well, yeah, preach. D- don't, don't lower... Uh, don't go doctrine light, but certainly preach appropriately. Preach with, with passion. Preach, so, so it's not like a dispassionate lecture. No, preach with passion. Preach with, with vivid illustrations. Preach with stories that engage them. That's why you've got to watch the telly they watch. That's why you've got to read the newspapers that are read. You've got to know what matters to them. You've got to listen to their hopes and their dreams and let that shape how you engage with them. But you're still preaching Christ crucified. You're still telling them about the doctrine of justification or propitiation. Um, And then, um, well, yeah. How do you bridge the gap? Um, You bridge the gap by having people who are willing to be missionaries. You bridge the gap by not expecting people in, a, in, in, in a, a, a more affluent part of town to be the place where these people come to. Hey, let's go and get them so that we can get them into this meeting. You don't do that. And you bridge the gap by going among them because that's what Jesus did, isn't it? He left the glory of earth for the slums of heaven. Uh, for the slums of earth. The glory of heaven for the slums of earth. Imitate me, says Paul, as I imitate Christ. 
Incarnation is, is, is a glorious demonstration of God becoming man. We're not being incarnational. I don't know if you use that term here, but if you do, please don't. Uh, it's theologically silly for you to use it of what we do. We're not, we, we, they're the same flesh that we're of. That there are far more similarities between us and differences. That's not the case with God being in flesh. That is not the case for, for, for us. So, so let's, let's just recognize it for what it is. But embeddedness, embodiedness there, that's an important concept. And that's how we bridge the gap. And sometimes you're going to mess it up. Sometimes you're going to offend people. Sometimes they just, they're just going to switch off and they're going to move on to the next thing. All these things are going to happen. Sometimes your heart is going to break. As you see a mother taken away from her kids because she's so high on heroin, she didn't know what she was doing in hanging them out of a window. Sometimes your heart is going to break. Sometimes your heart is going to break because people that you've shared the gospel with 50 times just tell you to F off and you, they don't want to speak to you again for no apparent reason. That's just going to happen. But that's okay. Okay, we've got 15 minutes still. Push back, whatever. I'm, I'm a northerner, I can cope with it. Yes, sir. You mentioned with regard to the Bible not reading, using maybe oral stuff. What have you done practically? And the other thing is the leadership stuff. Um, so, yeah, what have you done practically with helping with the Bible to people who are not readers? And with the leadership stuff, uh, my observation is that often people aren't initiative, and it's not the intellect, but it's just there is some people who are in that area or zone because they don't take it. Yeah. Passivity, yeah. Um, yeah. And part of leading others is being proactive to help others. So what have you done pragmatically? How do you help people with that who don't seem to have that gift of doing something for others and initiative rather than Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's a very good point. And um, I think that... Um, I'm not sure that it's a gift. I, I, I do think it's, it, it's, um, it's, what's the word I'm trying to find that's gone out of my head crazily? Um, I, I, I think it's a, um, oh, for goodness sake, it's a simple word. It's a learned skill. Is that what you said? Well done. Thank you. Give the man a prize there. Yeah, it's a learned skill. That's what it is. And, and I think you, you give people, in the context of relationships, and that's why it's so long term is so critical, um, just some background, you know, I, I, I believe sin is sin, um, and, and, and I believe that uh, all of us are responsible. I really do believe that passionately and theologically, but I do believe that um, our, our, our brain forms certain patterns uh, that are, become learned behavior. And so, so that's why when we preach the gospel, somebody isn't immediately saved and their life immediately transformed. The spirit is working on them, and he's, he's taken kind of 47 years to get me to my level of sanctification, and I've still got a long way to go. So I don't know why I expect him to do it instantly with somebody else. So, so be prepared for the long haul and invest in them as people, where you are equipping them, you're you're you're, you're helping them to, to to actually take responsibility. And and don't when when I say people don't read or want to read, and it may be that they don't, but it's okay to get to to teach them to read. 
Because a surprising number of people uh, who are illiterate want to read and are embarrassed by the fact that they can't. So when that's the case, teach them. But most people aren't illiterate. They're just not literate in the fact that that's not how they process. That's not how they... Um, so they're, they're very emotionally driven, very in the moment. Um, now, the interesting thing, I think, is that that is becoming a wider cultural norm. And I think, bizarrely, that is, that is how we are being culturally conditioned to be, in the moment, happiness-seeking people. Um, so you're engaging with kind of learned behavior that, will only, that, that will, is only going to be, by God's grace, rectified over a period of time. Um, and, but you, you can take the initiative in helping them. You can take the initiative in teaching them to read. You can take the initiative in, in giving them tasks that involve reading if you're trying to train them. But just make sure that it's not this kind of dense block of text with, that, are, that is multisyllabic. Just don't do that because why would you? So, so break it down. You know, it will be a great practice for all of us if we took a John Owen, for example, um, uh, and his mortification of sin, and we made that accessible for people that we're working with in, in, in these estates. Um, so, but just do it chunk by chunk and, and lower your expectations. You know, you're not trying to create your next Don Carson, um, but what you are trying to do is to nurture a disciple of Jesus. So, so getting someone from A to Z is unlikely. Do you say Z here or Z? Z. Good, good, good. Um, so getting them from A, sorry. <laughs> well, so Americans, but they say. That's why I like the rapper JZ. I think he's cool. Um, so getting them from A to Z is, is, is unlikely, but getting them from A towards B is real progress. So, so just take the time, be creative, be patient, persevere, be prepared uh, to be told that it ain't, it ain't working. So then fix it with something else. Um, and, and so it is... I think that the thing that I'm trying to get over is that it, there really is no single way of doing it. You've got to deal with people as individuals. Uh, do, you, do you use a lower uh, literacy level translation and do you use visual yes. word, word uh, visual? Yes. Um, yeah, so, so in terms of uh, um, the Good News Bible, um, so... You preach from that. That's that's very helpful. It's it, the the reading age is very low. Um, now, please don't think that I do my Bible study or prep on from the Good News Bible. I don't. Okay, I don't. But it's just a good good way to do it because it is very accessible. Um, and and so you do that. Um, there are various kind of uh, evangelistic talks, uh, uh, courses that are basically just people talking. Um, and then, you know, t- telling testimonies and then the gospel is shared. Um, and, and do your own. So that's what we've tried to do. We've, we, we produce the Mark's gospel with testimonies of people from the estate there, uh, interspersed. So, so you give it to people and they've got the photograph of people that they know and they think, wow, this is incredible. But with, that you're in, you're famous. <laughs> and, you know, they're reading about Jesus and they read Joel's story and they're reading more about Jesus and the, the, the sower and then they read uh, Sue's story and, and just that kind of thing. Just be very creative. And don't worry. And I think one of the problems that we have is that we can be very looking over our shoulder at our, at, at, at our um, middle class churches and middle class leaders 
who, who have the luxury of being really quite purist um, and thinking, what will they think of us? It doesn't matter what they think of you. Just really, it doesn't matter. You're, you're trying to reach them for Jesus. And that means that you're going to take risks. That means you're going to make mistakes. But that's okay because you're trying to reach them for Jesus. You're not doing it like they would, but they're not here. You are. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think we, we, we have had some success, partial, not, not, not glory. I'll tell you a little bit about my first church. Um, that was in a mining community, um, and uh, it's a very working class church. Uh, and there were parts of the town in which it was were, that were that was sometimes called sink estates in that you know, it's just where all the, all the, all the garbage is thrown. Um, and uh, we saw people starting to get uh, saved from there but just because we were engaging with the town. Um, and they, they were more kind of integrated in the life of the town rather than an enclave. Um, and, and when they, they came in, it was great to see um, the, the, the few people who... Because some working class people who have worked hard all their life uh, although they're, they're at a low part of the, the social e- economic strata and they're, you know, they're not middle class, they're not upper class, um, it can, can be very, very dismissive of other people that are from benefit class and, and, and so on because why don't they just get a job? You know, I did it, I brought my kids up properly and so on. But it was just great to see a whole range of people lovingly welcome people who really did have very, very messy lives. Um, yeah, I mean, very messy lives. Um, and, and, and so, the, the, how did that happen? Well, because we worked hard at preaching the gospel. We worked hard at, at, at reminding ourselves of who we were in Christ. We worked hard at saying there, but for the grace of God. You know, it's just helpful for my kids to always tell them, never, ever, it is impossible to overestimate the privileges that you have over against somebody who's brought up in an estate like this. I, you know, my parents separated when I was two, so I went to live with my dad, um, which was a very different... I mean, he was working class, but it was... It, and I saw a lot of my, my mum and her family. But, but the difference between my brothers and me, humanly speaking, is because of just the fact where I was brought up, as opposed to where they were brought up. So never overestimate the privileges of that, which is an accident of birth or just an an act of providence. And we really know which one it is. So that breeds a humility and a willingness then to to be gentle with people. But if you don't have the the scope to have that influence, then, then it may very well be that the only thing you can do is just go and plant. But do it in a 
different way than you would if you were going to plant in another part of a, a prosperous part of town. Take that long-term view. Remember, 10 years it's taken us to where we've planted. That's a long leading time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, you said that living among them is a non-negotiable to get the living out of the state. Do you place any limits on that in terms of protecting yourself or your family? Like who you'll have over? So living among them is a non-negotiable, but do you uh, set any limits on that in terms of protecting your family, who you have over, etc.? Yeah, of course, there's, uh, there are limits to, to everything, and it would just be kind of just silly rhetorical nonsense and, uh, if, if I was saying otherwise. So if you've got kids, you're not going to have an open house to pedophiles, are you? Of course you're not. But that doesn't mean to say you shouldn't be reaching pedophiles with the gospel, and it doesn't mean to say that you're not going to be hospitable to pedophiles, but you're going to put things in place. That's just loving for the pedophile, never mind your kids. Um, but I do think there's a there's a, a a danger that we have, particularly when when for middle class people, is that that we're willing, and I alluded to this before, we're willing to expose our kids to the to, to the pernicious evils of careerism and consumerism, but we're not willing to expose them to the evils of of um, the broken lives, evidently broken lives. Um, and and, and I, I don't get why that's the case. You know, I don't get why, because of education, people say, I could never live on that because where could I send my kids to school? Well, you send them where everybody else is sending them. And, and if that means that they're not going to get the kind of education that they can't go to university, well, so what? I mean, that's no big thing, really. There's lots of people who have done remarkably well in life through not going, and not going to university. Education is not the... God, there's nowhere in the Bible that we're told to educate our kids to degree level. We're told to bring them up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. So let's invest in that. And if our, if, if our kids don't get the kind of education that, that our, our middle class friends think they should have, but they actually are brought up in the fear of the knowledge of the Lord, they see their parents living a life to reach people for Christ, they're included in that, including, yes, you know, just some, seeing some stuff as well, um, but doing it within the context of being a loving, caring parent um, so that they understand the gospel better about a Jesus who did what he did for our sakes and ended up on a cross, well then, then that's a glorious environment to bring your kids up into. So, so of course you've got to be wise, of course you've got to be, um, you, you can't be foolish with your kids, but, but don't excuse a, a, a desire not to do it because actually what you want your kids to do is to be part of a ballet club or a football club or a music club and you want them to go to school where they wear uniforms and where they address people as sir and uh, where they hold doors open for teachers because that's not any more godly than anything else and it's this idol of family as well isn't it that is a problem in the evangelical world generally yes Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and I think that, 
I mean, you do want men to be men, don't, don't you? And there are certain things that the Bible talks about. Um, a man, a man is somebody who takes responsibility. Um, and I, I did a, a, a couple of sessions in our church recently um, uh, in terms of how to be a blessing to the men in your life for women and how to be a blessing to women in your life for men. Um, and one of the, the, the best ways uh, is responsibility. You know, you look at, at Genesis 3 and Adam abdicated responsibility. So I said, you know, the case is, are we an in Adam man or are we an in Christ man? Because you look at Genesis 3, you look at Philippians 2, and those are two very different models of, of masculinity. Um, so, so you want to, in terms of the way you disciple young men who are working in these areas among uh, these, the, these groups of people, you want them to model what a biblical masculinity is. That is somebody who takes responsibility, somebody who, is, who, who has a real tenderness about him, somebody who is prepared to stand in the way uh, in order to protect. You want somebody who gains respect. Um, and, and, but that's not a posturing. It doesn't need to be aggressive at all, but it does need to, 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 to know, okay, I, I'm here. I was affected greatly as a young man, a guy called David Wilkinson, crossing the switchblade. Any of you remember that with Nicky Cruz and so on? Well, he, he was among the gangs of New York, and, uh, and Nicky Cruz, uh, uh, he, he stood in front of him, and Nicky Cruz said, you know, I could cut you into a thousand pieces with this flick knife. And he said, and he just stood there and said, yeah, and every one of you will, every, every piece will continue to love you. Now, that was a non-aggressive, um, bold masculinity, wasn't it? Um, and, and, and we really can nurture that, model that, disciple people in it. Um, and it's vital, it's vital that we do that. So somebody who is prepared to step in a way of a man about to uh, beat his woman up. Somebody who's prepared to do that, even if the guy is ridiculously big. Because you're saying, no, it's not going to happen. Somebody who's prepared to get his jaw broke for the sake of Christ. That's a masculinity that we've got to be prepared to do. Because Jesus was the kind of man who was willing to have nails driven into his hands and feet for our sake. But make sure it's a, a gospel definition. It's 3.30, gone. Better finish, haven't we? Thank you very much, everyone. Um, I'm going to pray. Father... Um, Lord, we want to see people one for Jesus. We really do, because we know that's your heart, that's our heart. Um, we want to see all kinds of people one for Jesus. We want to see the movers, the shakers. We want to see uh, the dropouts uh, and, and the pimps and the prostitutes and the dealers. Lord, we want to see them all one for Christ. Give us a heart for that, Lord. Let us be prepared to do everything for the sake of the gospel. Somehow, in some way, Lord, just, just drive us out to where we need to be. Help us to look to areas that are, um, are gospel priority areas, where people have no access to the gospel or, gospel or God's people. And let us be prepared, Lord, to think about how we might reach them. Lord, we know that we're going to fail uh, in many areas. We know that we're going to stumble, make mistakes. But help us to be willing out of a passion for them and a, a desire for the fame of Jesus. Lord, please help us to be willing to do whatever it takes for the glory of Christ. Amen.